rivalry. Reeves and Dillon. Couple of left shots by Dillon. What does this sound like to you? And an overhand right by Reeves. A boxing match? Reeves lands one. A UFC fight? Now an uppercut, now an overhand right by Reeves. A WWE showdown? You may be surprised to find out that what we're actually listening to is a hockey game. Dylan has the jab going on. Solid right there by Reeves. I caught him on the left side of his head, it looked like. Not only are full body checks part of the sport, players will often drop their gloves and duke it out on the ice themselves. Uppercut overhand by Reeves. He's throwing bombs. This is the boxing acumen here of Reeves, isn't it? Even though fighting has decreased, and many different types of hits that were illegal in the past, have since been outlawed, it still happens a fair amount. In the 2015-2016 season, fights occurred in just over 23% of the games, compared to the 2009-2010 season, when there were fights in over 40% of the games. Many former and current NHL players are struggling with concussions and head trauma. Some former players have even died. The Ontario Provincial Police have confirmed that former NHLer Bob Probert has died. Research has shown that many of these players were suffering from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, better known as CTE. The syndrome caused by repeated brain injury can lead to behavioral problems and dementia. Now this term may sound familiar to you as this disease has plagued the brains of many other professional athletes specifically those who play in the NFL. Hall of Famer Junior Sam, one of the league's most beloved players for his play on the field and his image off of it, retired from football and in time withdrew from his family. He committed suicide, shooting himself in the chest, which allowed doctors to study his brain. The NFL was entangled in a decades-long struggle that included several denials of medical research and several long-term legal disputes. In 2011, a class action lawsuit against the NFL over concussion-related injuries was filed. The case was settled in April 2015 without an admission of wrongdoing for over $1 billion to be paid out over the next 65 years to more than 20,000 NFL retirees. Bloomberg Business estimates the NFL's revenue is $9.5 billion per year. Doctors and researchers have uncovered how dangerous football can be to the brain. With the NHL denying a connection between playing hockey and CTE, it's fair to ask, can hockey be as dangerous to the brain as football? Frame of Reference is an audio documentary series focused on tackling the most important issues in sports. I'm Bill Atzel. And I'm Sorja Mukherjee. And in each episode, we'll examine stories that could impact the landscape for years to come. Historic moments in sports are often layered and the result of something bigger. In short, we're on a mission to find those answers. So join us as we go beyond the events to the questions and ideas at the heart of the matter. On today's episode... Hockey has always been an inherently violent sport, with body checks, blindside hits, and fighting all being tolerated within the game. Over time, rules have been put in place to monitor the game's excessive violence rather than mitigate it. In spite of its sheer entertainment value, there is evidence to suggest that this level of physicality cannot be sustained, with many former players suffering from the long-term consequences of repeated head trauma. Moreover, the NHL has been accused of being slow to respond to this issue and have repeatedly denied any link between CTE and playing hockey. We explore the issue of head trauma in the NHL. How problematic is CTE in hockey and what should the league do in response? With over a dozen cases of NHL players who have been posthumously diagnosed with CTE, we'll be taking a deeper look at three individual examples to illustrate each facet of the larger issue. First up, Derek Bogard of the Minnesota Wild and later the New York Rangers. 
I think it's fairly clear that playing hockey isn't the same as playing football. And as we've said all along, we're not going to get into a public debate on this. The fundamental thing is that trauma to the brain does not care if that trauma is coming from football, hockey, or boxing. They're all the same. Oh, here we go. Bogart right off the whistle. Inside the blue line. Now Bogart drops him again, this time with Fedora. Well, no one wants to be what's called a highlight reel. And right now, Bogart has one highlight reel on Brennan. Bogart and Davison. Oh, I don't know if that's a, that's a bone that Davison wants to pick. I don't know what he was thinking. So Derek Bogart was originally from Saskatchewan, Canada. For a long time, he played hockey as a youth. And even though he was seen as someone who was too big and lanky and awkward on the ice, people loved him for his size and his ability to fight. He ended up playing in the Western Hockey League in Canada up until 2002 when he was drafted by the Minnesota Wild and ended up playing in the American Hockey League, which is the minor leagues for the NHL for two years before joining the Minnesota Wild in 2005. Derek was primarily an enforcer, so his job was to go out there and start fights with players on the other team if they ever committed a violent act or a dirty hit. And throughout his career, Derek played 277 games in the National Hockey League. He had 589 minutes in the penalty box, along with three total goals. For a forward to have only three goals over the course of his career, Even a layman fan can understand that that's unusual. If I'm understanding this correctly, Bogart's teams didn't necessarily use him for his offensive prowess. Instead, what they relied on him for was to stir the pot, essentially. He was even nicknamed the Boogeyman by fans of the Minnesota Wild and others around the league. Number 94, Derek Bogart. He was basically the team's policeman out there. And if they did something that they took exception to, he would go out on the ice, basically start fights with the other team in order to, quote unquote, teach them a lesson or warn them to never do that again. The role of enforcer exposed Bogard to repeated head trauma, chronic pain, and a deadly drug addiction. Derek Bogard was just 28 years old. Family members found Bugard dead in his Minneapolis apartment last night. You know, here's this kid from small town Saskatchewan that worked his butt off to play in the NHL. So what went so horribly wrong? Let's extend the metaphor you already used. The word you used, policeman, that or the more commonly used enforcer actually serves as an unofficial role in the sport. It has died out in recent years, but throughout most of the NHL's history, the enforcer was a valued and respected position on each and every team. Yeah, it's important to note that aggressive players like Derek Bogard have been a staple of hockey for decades, often tracing its roots back to the early days of the expansion. So from 1942 to 1967, the NHL was home to only six teams, but 1967, the league expanded and doubled in size. One of these teams was the Philadelphia Flyers, who were talented at the start, but lacked a certain toughness in their play. They went to the playoffs in 1968 and 1969, but were bounced immediately by the more talented and tougher St. Louis Blues, who they say inspired them to start developing a different strategy in their scouting and drafting of the roster. With other teams, like the Boston Bruins at the time, who won the Stanley Cup in 1970, the Flyers realized that they needed to be more aggressive and even bring a certain edge to their game. Throughout the early 70s, they drafted and developed a group of players that were talented, yet equally physical. These tactics led them to be known as the Broad Street Bullies and eventually resulted in two Stanley Cup titles in 1974 and 1975. But it does make you wonder, how did all this aggressive and violent play become so ingrained in the sport? 
it's still one of sports biggest mysteries how hockey came to tolerate fighting because aggressive play in contact sports is not uncommon we see it in rugby and in football but none of those sports actually tolerate fighting and outright violence within the sport even when you think of other sports that have an element of violence to them it serves a purpose in the goal of the game it seems that in hockey the different forms of violence in the sport don't always have a direct result in winning or stopping the opposing team. And like I said earlier, historians don't really know exactly where this came from, but they do have a couple theories that make sense. Adam Gopnik is a writer for The New Yorker. He's offered a theory that pretty much explores the answer to your central question, when and where did this fighting become a part of the sport's DNA? And his theory takes us back to the late 1800s in Montreal which was pretty much the birthplace of organized hockey. At the time, Montreal was a hub of a number of different ethnic groups, from the English and Scottish elite, to the native French Canadians, to Montreal's Irish and English-speaking Catholics. There was a lot of strife during this era, and these undertones were often taken out on the ice. And Gopnik, along with another historian, Michel Vigneault, in his doctoral thesis, argued that hockey was in part an improvisational game at the time that just served as an outlet for these citizens to take out their other tensions. And so fighting was never part of the original game itself. Due to these undertones and these disagreements, it became an unofficial presence in almost every pickup game. There was even the danger of players using their sticks to fight with each other on the ice. That violence reached a tipping point when there was a player in 1905 who was literally killed instantly on the ice after being struck in the face with a fist and a stick. Both players responsible were charged with manslaughter and later acquitted, but the early adopters of the sport knew that something had to be changed. And so they adopted fighting and this almost secondary narrative of the sport in an unofficial way in the sport and decided to somewhat control it. Now, one of the big reasons why fighting is still tolerated and has been tolerated for so long in the NHL is because they have put rules in place to monitor this and to dole out punishment for more egregious offenses when it comes to violent hits and fighting in the sport. With the Broad Street Bullies introducing a new era of physicality, the league responded to try and curb total all-out brawls between teams. So in 1977, they adopted the third man-in rule, which ejected a player who tried to join a fight between two players, including people who left the bench to try and join a fight. And later on in 1992, they put in harsher penalties for the person who instigated a fight on the ice. As a result, fighting has been on the decline since the late 80s, and just this past year reached a record low at 0.19 fights per game, the lowest number since the league started tracking fight statistics. And that's not to say that the debate doesn't still rage on to this day. The story of young Don Sanderson and how he died in a fight during a hockey game has triggered a raging debate about the role of fighting in our national sport. Many medical professionals have come out and said that this level of of aggression and physicality cannot be sustained in the long term. On one side, those who believe fighting debases a game that's already the fastest, toughest, most exciting in the world, and that it's only a matter of time before someone in the National Hockey League is seriously injured in a fight, or worse. With players arguing that fighting is still an integral part of the sport. On the other side, those who argue that fighting is a necessary release valve and a fundamental part of the NHL. So let's look at the two sides of this a little closer. Professional hockey is often a very emotional game, and if players go unmonitored, they could commit more egregious plays that would result in graver consequences down the road. So a lot of players argue that allowing for fighting would let out the pressure so that players don't unintentionally do something far worse than they intended. On the other hand, you see these players on the ice pounding each other in the face and the head. And these hits take a toll. Some guys I know couldn't sleep at night. They'd sweat. I'd, I'd toss and turn it. There's some nights I didn't get good night's rest, knowing what I needed to do the next night. Looking at Derek Bogard as an enforcer, getting into fights for his entire career, these fights 
could have directly led to concussions, mental health problems, and eventually his death. It's not, it's not for everybody, and some guys think they have the stomach for it, but six months later they're out of the game. It's true that you always want to avoid dirty blindside hits and checks into the board throughout a game, but the constant battles that enforcers take on night in and night out have a long-term effect on their health. The statements you just made have been backed by the science in recent years. I said somebody is going to get killed in a fight. It's an inevitability. Mm -hmm. And when it happens, we'll see the hockey world turned upside down. And we will, all of this stuff will be exposed. And here we are. Here we are exposing it for what it really is. But from a commercial standpoint, it's really not in the NHL's best interest to get rid of fighting. A lot of the hockey fight clips that get shown on ESPN Sports Center or on YouTube, they have millions of views. With the NHL not producing the same revenue as the other major leagues in America, eliminating this aspect could be seen as the death knell for a game that's still growing in this country. Well, fighting is part of the game. It's, it's, it's been a part of the game. It's the nature of the game. It's, it's the physicality that is encouraged. It is the nature of, of constant nonstop action. It's undeniable that a fight in hockey can be super entertaining and can swing the momentum of a game and really get the home crowd engaged. But you have to think about what this looks like to viewers at home. I understand it is an entertainment product, but at the same time, it seems that the sport glorifies fighting and violence that in some cases can seem unnecessary to the game. And it sets a bad example for young fans. What does it tell them to see their favorite players on the ice, not making the extra assist or taking a shot on goal, but punching each other in the face? So the counterpoint that I would make would be that this tradition exists almost as an unwritten code amongst players. You, you'd give a cheap shot to one of our players, one of our stars, you should pay the price. If a guy falls, if a guy's down, you don't hit him when he's down. That, that's the code. And it, it's a simple code. You have to fight with honor. You don't sucker punch a guy either. 98% of NHL players surveyed in 2012 said they don't want to ban fighting in hockey. So when it's such an essential part of the professional game and it's governed by the NHL rulebook, it's hard to strip the sport of a tradition that's lasted for over 100 years. There is a standard decorum that referees follow when they're monitoring a physical altercation that has gotten to this point. For example, when a fight begins, all remaining players must leave the ice and go to their team's benches. Referees usually position themselves in the crease, and all fights end instantly when a player falls to the ice. And even though penalties are assessed as soon as a fight is over, this combat very rarely leads to an ejection. Unfortunately, from all this fighting, from all this aggressive physical play, several NHL players have paid the ultimate price. He's like, I can't stay here unless I fight. He didn't love it, but he knew it, and he was fine with it because he wanted to stay up in the NHL and, and have this career. The league was pressured to crack down on this issue in the summer of 2011, when Derek Bogard passed away at the age of 28, and two other former enforcers in the NHL, Wade Bielok and Rick Rippian, both died of an apparent suicide at the ages of 35 and 27. Were you aware that he was suffering concussions? None, no. Not once. We were never told. No documented concussions. And did you draw the correlation between what he was doing on the ice, the fights, the punishment, and what you were seeing happen at home? No, not at first. Wade couldn't figure it out. He had no idea what was wrong with him. Like, he's like, maybe it's the kids. Maybe it's our marriage. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. And I'm like, maybe there's depression. Like, maybe something's wrong. And these three casualties have just been the tip of the iceberg for the NHL. Steve Montador was a career journeyman in the NHL and various other leagues from the first days of the millennium until his retirement in 2014. However, shortly after he hung up his skates for good, the defenseman was found dead in his home at the age of 35. 
Those who knew Steve Montador well describe him as a guy with a big heart. Boy next door, very caring. The NHL defenseman most recently played for the Chicago Blackhawks in 2012 before a concussion cut his season short. Montador, just 35, was found unconscious at his home in Mississauga, Ontario, early Sunday morning. Later, he was pronounced dead. With over a dozen former NHL players having already been diagnosed with CTE, what makes Montador's case special, besides the fact that his father is suing the league over his death? So Steve Montador, like others who were later found to have CTE, he was very young. He had a 10-year career in the NHL and played up to 15 years across other leagues as well. He was a defenseman who had at least 11 documented concussions throughout his career, although some estimate that it could have been as high as 19 or 20 concussions. He even had four in a three-month span back in 2012, and much of his last year in the league was plagued by a single concussion that kept him out for most of the season. People, including his father, Paul Montador, saw changes in his behavior. He was not the same person that he was 10 years before or five years before. Which he documented in an interview with HBO's Real Sports. The difficult part for him and for those close to him was you didn't know whether it would ever get better. He ended up participating in almost 70 fights throughout his career. And people around him saw that he was having trouble with his impulse control and memory loss. It only got worse. And after he died, Montador was diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE the brain disease that causes memory loss, depression, and dementia, and is often accompanied by substance abuse. Paul, in the end, what killed your son? What brought him down was concussions, and the fact that he had too many, and he came back and played and got more. CTE ultimately was his downfall. He noticed these changes in himself, and even pledged to donate his brain to science before he passed away. This was a man who could see the writing on the wall. The last lunch that we had, three weeks before he passed away, he said a couple of very telling things. He said, hockey would be a better game without fighting. Hmm. He said, we should get rid of headshots. And at the end, he said, maybe I should have played baseball. After Montador passed away, his brain was studied by Dr. Lily Nas Hazrati of the Canadian Sports Concussion Project. It was found to be a severe case of CTE and the behaviors you mention, they line up with a lot of what Steve was experiencing in the final days of his life. With athletes like Bogard and Montador passing away at ages 28 and 35 respectively, the case that Montador's father made in the lawsuit was that these players at such a young age are not sufficiently educated on what their symptoms could be, and thereby don't have the benefit of potentially diagnosing themselves. Unfortunately for them, the case was thrown out earlier this year due to insufficient evidence. So it's important when you mention how Steve Montador's brain was ravaged by CTE, because we should first explain what CTE is. And we'll leave it to Dr. Robert Stern to describe it to you. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is a progressive degenerative brain disease that is similar to Alzheimer's disease in some way. But it's a unique disease. He's a professor of neurology, neurosurgery, anatomy, and neurobiology at Boston University. And he's also the director of clinical research at their CTE center. What it is, is a, a disease of the brain where a certain protein goes awry. It's called tau. And that tau protein starts to destroy brain cells. And then the parts of the brain that are getting hurt result in symptoms. And then the disease spreads and more and more brain tissue gets hurt. A lot of our listeners are probably already familiar with what CTE is, especially if they're football fans. The NFL faced a very similar predicament to what the NHL is facing currently, except it was 10 to 15 years ago. And after a lot of disputes, the league has taken an inordinate amount of safety precautions since the science first broke. A human being will get concussed at 60 Gs. A common head-to-head contact on a football field, 100 Gs. These findings were first published by Dr. Bennett Omalu. That name might seem familiar to you because it's the same person that the actor Will Smith portrayed in the 2015 movie Concussion. He first discovered this in the Pittsburgh Steelers center, Mike Webster. Do you even watch football? 
Uh, no, not at all. But I've been studying Mike Webster's position. The man in the middle is quite deceptively the most violent position on the field. The slaps, the punches, the forearm, it is an unremitting storm of subconcussive blows. The head as a weapon on every single play of every single game, of every single practice from the time he was a little boy. And since then, Omalu has developed sort of a reputation as the global authority on CTE and has portrayed the disease as an epidemic. And his research is backed up by Dr. Anne McKee, who actually works at the same CTE center at Boston University with Dr. Bob Stern. Even though McKee and Omalu disagree on some of their findings and methods for diagnosing CTE, they have really brought this issue to the mainstream media. And the science has gotten more attention and validation Along with Dr. Omalu, Dr. Anne McKee has been seen as one of the leading voices, if not the most prominent voice, when it comes to studying head trauma and concussions on former and current athletes. Uh, Dr. Anne McKee just conducted groundbreaking research on CTE. We're so pleased that you could join us this afternoon. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. It's a pleasure to be here. She even spoke in 2009 on the concussion issue in the NFL in front of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee. Through Chris Nowinski's efforts in early 2008, I had my first opportunity to examine the brain of a retired professional football player. It was the brain of John Grimsley, a former linebacker for the Houston Oilers who had died of an accidental gunshot wound while cleaning his gun at the age of 45. How do I sound? I don't, I don't have headphones, but I can call in through my phone if you'd prefer. I think you sound fine for us, like we can hear you. Is it okay on your end? Can you hear both of us clearly? Yes. Okay, yes. okay good. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. All right, wonderful. Dr. Chris Nowinski has had a truly astonishing career. Most insights come out of mutually shared experiences. So tell me if this is familiar to your life. You graduate from Harvard in 2000, where you played football, and you decide you want to sign up for a reality television show where 13 people live in a house together and compete for a contract to become a professional wrestler with WWE. And while you're on the show, you have a match with the trainers, and one of the trainers decides to go old school with you and take it from a professional wrestling match into a full-on assault. After suffering through his own trauma, Nowinski founded the Concussion Legacy Foundation in 2007. In 2006, 2007, basically the NFL was dismissing it all. And the NFL was dismissing the work of individual scientists. And I, I had the insight that you can't fight him as an individual. We need an institution behind it. A year later, his foundation partnered with Boston University to found the BU CTE Center, where Dr. McKee and Dr. Stern still continue their groundbreaking research to this day. Essentially, you need sort of the best medical school you can find who is willing to take this on. And because uh, the NFL can't say Boston University School of Medicine or Harvard University School of Medicine doesn't know what they're talking about, right? Could you actually share with us, how did you end up helping put that team of doctors together at the CTE Center? How, how were they, I guess, recruited to, to work there and do the work they're doing now? So the way I found Boston, Boston University is, of course, how many people do you know who who have brain banks, right? And the answer was very few. And I did. I ended up talking to some people at Harvard who didn't do brain pathology, but but they also just weren't that interested in taking on this fight because it's a it's a very difficult fight. It's a very high profile fight. It was, it was 2007. I had a roommate at the time. He saw a Alzheimer's expert named Bob Stern speak and talk about brain injury as one of the risk factors for Alzheimer's and acknowledge what he'd been reading the papers about CTE. And he thought, you know, this guy was really interesting and he sounded like he was interested in the CT work. You should go meet with him. And I went to Bob Stern at Boston University and I said, hey, I think we need to build a brain bank and study more of these cases, and that's how we're going to learn about CT, and that's how we're going to change the conversation on concussions. And he said, well, you should do it here, and we have you know, one of the best people in the world you could possibly hope for, and that's Dr. Ann McKee. In CTE, tau protein builds up in the individual nerve cells, preventing them from making normal connections with other nerve cells and eventually killing the cells. In this man's brain, there were massive numbers of NFTs, so many that you could see the abnormalities on the glass slides without the use of a microscope. All the brown pigment you see is abnormal, and please compare what you see in the middle panel, John Grimsley's brain, to the brain of a normal man, 
on the left, where you see absolutely no brown pigment. Well, the great thing about Dr. Anne McKee is that the CT thing wasn't essentially new to her. And I remind you that in a normal 45-year-old, absolutely none of these changes would be found. She already ran a huge brain bank with six individual brain banks as part of it. In fact, you wouldn't find these changes in a normal 65-year-old, 85-year-old, or 110-year-old. So she had all this wide experience, and she also had a couple of boxers in her brain bank with this abnormal CT that she had seen, but didn't think twice about because it was just two cases out of thousands. But when I spoke to her about it, she was a big football fan. She got the public health side. And I said, if I can get you the brains of athletes, will you study them? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, I can't give you any money. And she said, that's fine. I'll, I'll make it work. I probably didn't think I could do it, but the brain started coming in and she started uh, diagnosing them and it became uh, a, a really wonderful partnership. With both these experts' findings, the NFL was put in a tough situation. After years of denial, the NFL started to take steps toward protecting their players and providing for former players who were suffering from the consequences of playing football. They ended up reaching a settlement in 2013 for approximately $765 million to be provided to approximately 20,000 retired players over the course of the next 60 to 65 years. And even a federal judge ruled that the money may not be enough. Now, Dr. Anne McKee has made a name for herself at Boston University by publishing several different studies of former professional athletes, including one in 2017, where she studied 111 brains of former NFL players that were donated by families who feared that their loved ones had suffered from this disease. She found that 110 of them had CTE present in their brain. Now, we know that 99% of all NFL players aren't going to develop CTE, but this study showed that there was a significant sample size of former players who had suffered from this disease, enough to gain the attention of the media and the public and force the NFL to make changes over the last five to 10 years. What's interesting, however, is that the two people who led this charge in the late 2000s, Dr. Ann McKee and Dr. Ben Amalu have several differences when it comes to diagnosing CTE and defining the disease itself. Dr. Ann McKee is even on the record saying, quote, his criteria doesn't make sense. I don't know what he's doing, in reference to Dr. Bennett Amalu's work. Amalu has also falsely claimed that he discovered CTE when in fact this disease was known under a different term as early as the 1920s. In professional boxers. Again, the, the roots of CTE are in boxing. Again, no one's serious questions getting punched in the head over and over again can cause CTE. In some ways, NHL hockey is, for some of those athletes, is boxing on skates. Dr. McKee has also been the leader in studying former NHL players who have been found to have CTE after death. Now, much like Montador, a lot of these cases are coming to the forefront due to the family's involvement. One of the biggest cases McKee embellished upon was that of Stan Makita, who was an NHL Hall of Famer that passed away at the age of 78 in 2018. A posthumous study of his brain showed that he also suffered from chronic traumatic encephalopathy at the time of his death. And at the request of his family, McKee announced the findings during a Concussion Legacy Foundation honors dinner in Chicago back in September. One of the most damning things she said was that, quote, the NHL is nowhere on this. They have completely denied a link. They have denied any responsibility, and it's clear that they are just protecting their bottom line. It's sort of a funny thing, right? Because if you think 20 years ago, before we got into major American sports, <laughs> being diagnosed with CTE, nobody questioned that getting hit in the head over and over again caused punch drunk or CTE. Nobody in medicine questioned that. And then money got in the way, and it became marketable to say you're not convinced yet. Right? That gave you a platform. The NFL might make you an advisor. The idea that you're claiming that an NHL career couldn't cause CT is preposterous. What strikes me about this is that the path that the NHL is on currently, it resembles so much of the earlier years of the NFL debate. They spent years denying any link between this disease and their own sport. And later it was found that they were also protecting their bottom line. So the question is, even though some may claim that the science is a bit premature or that there aren't enough cases to draw any definitive conclusions, is the NHL on track to make the same mistakes that the NFL did a decade prior?
The NHL begs to differ. After doctors announced that Steve Montador's brain showed extensive evidence of CTE, in a statement the league said they do not agree that this establishes any link between Steve's death and his NHL career. In fact, Commissioner Gary Bettman insists there's no proof that hockey can lead to CTE at all. The evidence isn't there to support the cause and effect. So NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman and the league still refute any concrete link between CTE and playing hockey. And most of their argument is based on the fact that the science is still too premature. I think it's worth exploring what the league has already created in terms of a safety protocol for its players, given there's a mishap on the ice. So the NHL has put in place a concussion protocol that has mainly come into effect over the course of this last decade. One bonus of the protocol is that when a player is diagnosed with a concussion, they have to go through a stringent six-step process before they can return to the ice. In terms of spotting a player who may have a concussion on the ice, that's when things get dicey. The NHL says it has taken action by relying on so-called spotters at games to get concussed players off the ice. But these spotters don't have to be medical experts and are often just team coaches. Time and again, they fail as brain-injured players are kept in the game. So the league has made strides to be able to identify players on the ice who might need to come out of a game due to a head injury. This was then strengthened when they created an office in New York of NHL personnel who watch games every single night and watch replay in order to see if any player could be hurt. And they can relay this information to the spotters in the arena so that they can act on it and take a player out of the game if necessary. They've also instituted off-ice officials. But unfortunately, those officials don't have to have any sort of medical background, which could be tricky when diagnosing whether a player should come out due to a head injury or not. And there have been plenty of instances where players are taken out for precautionary reasons, and they understand why. TJ Oshie is a winger for the Washington Capitals, and after he hit his head on the ice and had to come out of a game recently, he said, when I felt fine and I was told I had to go, I understand it's for the best. And that just shows that not only did they take him out because he fell, but they were cautious due to the fact that he had had several other head hits earlier in the season. But on the other hand, they sometimes aren't able to diagnose it right away or take risks with players in the heat of the moment. During the 2017 Stanley Cup playoffs, Sidney Crosby, the star player for the Pittsburgh Penguins, suffered a concussion in Game 3 of their seven-game series against the Washington Capitals. And he came out of that game, was diagnosed with a concussion, and missed Game 4. But he was back on the ice in Game 5 and took a hard hit to the boards in Game 6. However, no one took him out of the game, despite the fact that he was slow to get up and that he has not only a history in that series of having concussions, but had a history throughout his career of issues with concussions and prolonged concussion symptoms. So in a nutshell, this is good news. Even though these policies aren't going to fix the problem 100%, it is a step in the right direction. It means the league has put in safety precautions for current players who exhibit symptoms of concussions mid-game, or for those who've had a recent history with head trauma. But it's the league's handling of former players and their issues with head trauma that has most people up in arms. Todd Ewan was an enforcer for four different teams over an 11-year career in the NHL. After battling depression, and other mental health problems, he committed suicide in 2015 at the age of 49. Now, Todd Ewan's case is pertinent to this discussion for a number of different reasons. After playing in the NHL from 1986 to 1997, Ewan began exhibiting a lot of different symptoms. Somewhere around 2002, 2003, we started to see a big change in Todd. Sadness, some darkness, reclusiveness, sometimes a little bit on the violent side. His personality would change at the drop of a hat. I had spoken to a counselor that we were seeing and just said, this is a man that I just don't even know anymore. At the time of his death, he had already been suffering from depression for several years. And his family often wondered if his post-career deterioration was the result of 
the sheer number of concussions that he suffered during his playing career. After his suicide, his wife, Kelly Ewan, was desperate to get his brain studied for signs of CTE. And what makes this particular case even more interesting is that at first, the initial tests of his brain came back negative for CTE, and he was diagnosed by Lily Nas Hazrati, who was the same neuropathologist who studied Steve Montador's brain. And this became important when the NHL was facing a multitude of lawsuits from former players who had been exhibiting similar symptoms. When Dr. Hazrati came out and said that Todd did not have CTE, the NHL seized on this and they began to use Todd as a figurehead. Gary Bettman, the NHL commissioner, wrote that the media has fanned the fears about CTE. And in fact, Gary Bettman used Todd Ewan as an example of that. He said that Todd Ewan took his own life believing that he had CTE when he didn't. So several former NHL players decided to sue the league back in 2013. And over the course of five years, they had built a case with hundreds of different players trying to receive justice from the NHL for the consequences they suffered playing on the ice. The league actually used Todd Ewan's case against the players in their argument. Commissioner Gary Bettman made a point of saying that Todd Ewan did not die of CTE, but rather because he thought he had CTE, and that it was dangerous to even ask the question in the first place. This lawsuit also put Dr. Lily Nas Hazrati in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. She had declared Todd Ewan's brain CTE-free. However, it was found out later that she was an expert witness on behalf of the NHL and actually received a $25,000 retainer for her work with the league. She was even deposed in March 2018 during this suit and claimed that CTE may not even be a disease after all. I deposed Dr. Hazrati in March 2018. Do you think that fighting in hockey is bad for the brain? Um, if it's good for the brain or not, I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. Dr. Hazrati was attempting to cast doubt on a causal link between blows to the head and CTE, and in fact, whether CTE was an illness at all. Okay. Um, but it's not a thing. It's a pattern recognition. You, CTE, you say CTE is not a thing, it's a pattern condition? It's a pattern recognition. So you don't believe CTE is a disease because it's never been proven that it actually causes any symptoms? Yes. Okay. Which is strange coming from her after she had diagnosed Steve Montador with it, just a few years prior. This put her on the spotlight as having a huge conflict of interest, and it was one of the reasons why Kelly Ewan sought out a second opinion of her husband's brain. Subsequent examinations completed by the Boston University medical staff and Dr. Ann McKee confirmed substantial evidence of stage 2 CTE. I guess I just wanted to ask, to the best of your ability, you don't have to answer this, but it's just to see how much you know regarding Dr. McKee's work on that. From your interactions with her, and what you know about the case. Is it of the opinion of her, you, and the staff at the BUCT Center that Dr. Hizrati made an honest mistake in her study of Todd Ewan's brain, or that the evidence was sufficient enough that someone of her and Dr. McKee's expertise should be able to spot it? Um, you're right that it's probably just not best for me to answer. The only reason we ask is because she actually has studied Steve Montador. She diagnosed Steve Montador, but not Todd Ewan's. And then in our research, we've seen there's a conflict of interest due to the fact that she appeared as an expert witness on the NHL side in their lawsuit with the players. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's an unfortunate situation. I mean, the, Dr. McKee's result was confirmed by the Mayo Clinic, right, which is one of the top neuropathological labs in the country. So it, would, it was definitely there. CT is patchy. So if you look in the wrong places, you will miss it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know why this mistake was made. It's an unfortunate mistake for everybody. But um, you, I mean, I think it's just logically, if Dr. Hazrati had done that on purpose, she wouldn't have sent the brain to us. Right. Right. To, to refute the claim. So I think there was just some, some unfortunate mistake along the way. The lawsuit gained a lot of steam by the time 2018 rolled around, as 318 former players had attached themselves to the suit. However, in July of that year, U.S. District Judge Susan Nelson in Minnesota denied class action status for the former NHL players. She cited widespread differences in applicable state laws and suggested that the medical monitoring that the players sought in this suit had such disparities state to state and would cause, quote, significant case management difficulties. 
Eventually, the suit was settled in November of 2018. The NHL doled out nearly $19 million to the 318 former players. Many former players looked at it as the best they were going to get from the league. The settlement was also seen as crumbs compared to the nearly $1 billion the NFL agreed to in its settlement just five years prior. There are still some individuals out there who are suing the NHL, including Todd Ewan's wife, Kelly Ewan. You have filed a lawsuit against the National Hockey League. What are you asking? The main reason to bring awareness, to bring it into light, is not about money, you know? It's about the pain, the agony, the years of duress. I feel like it's the NHL's responsibility to stand up and take care of these players, that this great game of hockey was built on these fighters, that gave base essentially their lives for the NHL, and it's time for them to step up and admit and help them get This is obviously a sensitive and complex topic. But how do we sum up everything that we've learned? We've seen that fighting has been on the decline for decades and has now reached historic lows. However, it still is an accepted part of the sport. Right. The players who partake and are the most vulnerable to head trauma issues, they're the ones fighting to keep it because it's been such a core part of the sport for the past hundred years. So what is the solution here? Well, that's only one side of the discussion here. The players want to keep it because they believe that it prevents other violent acts from happening out in the ice and that actually protects players more so than not. I guess the natural direction to turn to is the referees and how the concussion protocol is monitored while on the ice. As we've discussed, it isn't as stringent as it could be or as it should be because with the increasing number of players who've displayed signs of head trauma, whether it be during their careers, or even after retirement, there should be a revision of the rules that currently stand. Even as viewers of the sport, me and you have both been confused by how referees police blindside and quote-unquote dirty hits on the ice. It is important to point out that the NHL's concussion protocol has made strides over the years and has done a lot of good in ensuring the health of its players. However, policies like this are never 100% foolproof, so it's important that the NHL revisits its policies and procedures and improves upon it as the years go on. I I know we're almost out of time. We just wanted to ask you one more question. Just in your opinion, looking forward now, what kind of breakthroughs in CT research do you think we might see over the next 10 years or so? Uh, I hope we see uh, a lot of breakthroughs in CT research. And the good news is, with the increased brain donations, the more brain banks around the world that are getting involved in this work, and the more scientists and and funding that are coming to it, the research and the discoveries will accelerate. Um, what What I'm hoping we will learn, I mean, the big questions are always, how can we better diagnosis in living people? How can we potentially prevent CT from occurring before it starts? How do you slow or stop it once it's begun. If you know, if you get a label, you can live with it. He would have been able to live with it. It was the not knowing, feeling that he can't control what he's thinking or doing, and not knowing, and no one really taking it seriously. You can deal with it if you can just get a label. Um, How do you treat it? I think we'll identify a lot of other possible mechanisms along the way, and basically To use a hockey analogy, we'll get a lot more shots on goal uh, over the next 10 years because we'll we'll learn more about the disease. So the the other reality, though, is that we have a lot of work to do. We're not going to end this decade with a treatment. Uh, It takes longer to develop these things. And so, you know, CLF is very focused on recruiting raw materials to this. We need more brains. We need more scientists. We need more interest. We need more funding towards this disease or we will not solve it. And, and luckily, CT is now being embraced by the wider neurodegenerative disease community. And so, um, you know, there's a lot more uh, hope for major breakthroughs. I guess I'll leave it there. The continuing advancement of CTE research is vital in learning hockey's effect on the brain. And this research is not only helping current players, 
with how they can monitor their health, but it'll also be key in helping those who have retired and started suffering from this brain trauma from further negative consequences. And even though in the grand scheme of things, CTE is still relatively a new subject, the research and the findings continue to become more clear as the years go on. So now, the onus of responsibility falls on the NHL and Commissioner Gary Bettman. Will the league continue to deny this issue for what it is now and make the same failings that the NFL made in the early parts of the millennium? Or will they address this issue head on, nip it in the bud, and set an example for leagues and commissioners in the future? You've been listening to season one of Frame of Reference. Thank you all so much for tuning in. A big shout out to our third team member and graphic designer, Tianxin Chen, for her wonderful cover art. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd really appreciate it if you left us a review. Next up, we revisit the topics we covered in our first two episodes. Stay tuned to find out more about how those issues have progressed. Until then, so long and take care.